It's alive. Do you realize how significant this is? Oh, I have an inkling. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Alive. It's alive. It's alive. Welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And this time we are going to be talking about something that you might have expected us to cover for Halloween. And we totally would have covered it for Halloween because it's the classic horror novel Frankenstein from Mary Shelley. Because there was also a recent, quote, adaptation of it, Victor Frankenstein, in theaters that was due out in October. And so we had planned all along to read the book and watch that movie and watch some of the other films, because there's a lot of them, and talk about that for Halloween this year. Unfortunately... 20th Century Fox owns the distribution rights for Victor Frankenstein and for The Martian. And The Martian, they decided to move up for reasons that we might go into. And the unfortunate victim of that was Victor Frankenstein. So instead of coming out at Halloween, it came out over Thanksgiving weekend. So we had Frankenstein or Franksgiving. <laughs> it came out over Thanksgiving because the movie was a turkey. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> Opinions may be somewhat divided on that, but... Um, it's not doing very well, I will say that. Right. And so I'm going to need to turn around this episode pretty quickly, just in case we recommend that people go out and see this, because I'm not sure how long it's going to be in theaters. I'm not sure we're going to recommend that people go out and see this. <laughs> right. It might be one of those uh, DVD recommendations. Yes, that could be. Yeah. Uh, I was looking into some of the reasons that the movie was actually pushed out, and it wasn't so much that Victor Frankenstein was pushed out so much as Martian was pulled in. Right. And, you know, we've previously covered that on on. An, earlier episode. And it's a good movie. And it seems like what happened was they decided to give it a little easier competition in October than it would have had in November. Um, because right now in theaters, we have the new Hunger Games movie just in its you know second or third week here. We had Creed, which is getting pretty good reviews. And so um, they decided to slot Victor Frankenstein in there and put it up against those movies. And uh, yeah, like we said, it has not gone well. <laughs> but The Martian got to come out against a bunch of stuff that I don't even remember. Right. Um, and so, and it did really well. So I can't say that I blame them for doing it. Yeah. It just ruined our theme. That's all. Right. Yeah. But you know, it's a podcast. It's out there. So somebody at some point in the future might listen to this for Halloween. Oh, there so you go. If so, welcome future person. Um, how are the jetpacks? <laughs> As always though, um, we don't typically just do one adaptation of a book. We like to cover a variety of them. Lots of times we like to cover all, but in the case of something like this, and last year for Christmas, we did a Christmas carol, and in that case, you know, how were we going to cover all of that? We weren't. So we had to kind of pick and choose, and we had a small list, which ended up growing right? Um, <laughs> to where I think we have, what, six things under consideration? Yep. yep. And the book. Yeah, we'll have to go, uh, go back and see what exactly we covered for Christmas carol, because it might be a record, this one versus that one. Yeah, I mean... Each of us covered different things with that, too. Yeah, it's true. Um, we we know, had I, more time, I, I think, for uh, Christmas yeah. Girl. I think collectively, we probably did more more adap adaptations, but this one's, this one's coming close to our record, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I had put a feeler out on the social media back in October, because we were thinking of doing this, mm -hmm. um, asking people what versions of Frankenstein we should watch. And so I wanted to read out a couple of responses from that, and then we can kind of compare to what we actually did. Um, so Jeff Palermo of the Sci-Fi On Screen podcast, he recommended the 1931 film and the Kenneth Branagh film from 1994 and The Curse of Frankenstein, which is the Hammer film. 
And I want to talk a little bit about that one. That's the one with uh, Peter Cushing, who's Grand Moff Tarkin, and oh. Christopher Lee. Oh. Um, and very different monster effects. And we'll, we'll get back to talking hmm. about why those effects were different. Um, I couldn't find that one at the library, and I, I wasn't quite willing to pull the trigger on on paying for it. So everything else uh, was a little cheaper. Even, I didn't even spend any money on the movie ticket to go see Victor Frankenstein. Right. <laughs> so, you wasted a free uh, ticket on that? I did, yeah. Oh, yes, we did. Guy. Two of them, actually, because I brought my son. That's wow. true. Yeah. And then uh, Michael Simshauser had recommended, okay, yeah, sure, do those, but also do Young Frankenstein, which, of course, of course. we were already yes. thinking of doing. Um, and the Geek Likes, Roger from the Geek Likes also said, yes, definitely Young Frankenstein. And he also said that he has enjoyed the portrayals of Victor Frankenstein and his creations on the show Penny Dreadful, which is a show that I've, I'm kind of interested in. I've, I've never, never seen it. I think it's a Showtime show, so it might be one of those ones that's a bit dodgy, but I've heard good things about it. Yes, I've heard good things about that, too. There was another miniseries, um, another television show on right now about Frankenstein uh, with Sean Bean. Uh, the Frankenstein Chronicles. Oh, okay. Yeah, it takes place in London, I think. But that was another show I was interested in watching, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah. I was surprised with, with the number of selections that we had and the fact that we hadn't watched a lot of them until recently, how many of them we actually managed to watch together. So <laughs> Yes, that, that cool. is very true. That should please the call-in, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> um, so, anyhow, the, the list of things we have, you guys can help me out. Um, we have the 1818 novel by Mary Shelley. 1816. 1816? Yes. Uh, maybe it was republished in 1818. I think we should go and let Colin list this one out. He's got it down. Okay. I don't have them all down. I'll just go as far as I can. You guys jump in. All right. Sounds good. So, uh, 1816, the original novel. Seth wanted me to watch the 1912 adaptation. For reasons that we will talk about in a little while. Did you watch it? I did not. Okay. I believe you are the lone watcher in that one, Seth. Okay. Well, I will, I will tell you about it. Okay. There's the the famous, famous 1931 movie with Boris Karloff as Vic, as uh, the monster. There's Slip the, up there. Huh? <laughs> a little slip up there. A little slip up there. There's the 1935 movie, Bride of Frankenstein. There is the 1979 Young Frankenstein Frankenstein, please. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Uh, then I think we jump up to 1994 for the Kenneth Brada adaptation where he plays Vic and Robert De Niro plays his monster. Right. right. Then we go to 2004 where Luke Goss plays the monster, somewhat known as Adam. Right. Uh, you know, we could throw in the I Frankenstein movie. We have all seen We have it. all seen it. It, it would be worth <laughs> commenting on probably. Yes. Was that 2014 uh, or 2013? I can't remember now. Yeah, I don't remember either. It's not memorable enough to know. There you go, right. Yeah. And then we have the very recent 2015 adaptation with Harry Potter James McAvoy. and James McAvoy. <laughs> Harry Potter and Charles Xavier. Yes. So there was a lot of movies. Yes. So what we're saying is, uh, everybody get a bathroom break. Uh, we could be here a while. So... Before we really kind of jump into talking about any of the properties under consideration here, I did want to at least hit briefly on kind of our cultural awareness of Frankenstein going into this. I'm the only one who had previously read the book, and that was pretty mm -hmm. recent. So before that, though, be like before you guys started reading for this podcast or, or watching for this podcast, where did you know Frankenstein from and what was your conception of it? You want to go first, Colin? Sure. 
Uh, I would say my first conception of Frankenstein either came from Halloween costumes, or more likely for me, from uh, the original Scooby-Doo cartoon in right. the 1970s. <laughs> uh, Frankenstein was a large green monster with bolts sticking out of his neck. Uh, he wasn't very literate. And uh, yeah, he w- was very strong. Right. What about you, Jimmy? I have to go with uh, probably Halloween and the Addams Family. Nice. Yes. I think... I think I saw Monster Squad at some point, but I think Scooby-Doo was probably right. where, where I knew him from. And Frankenberries, obviously. Frankenberries. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, like, I was culturally aware of the idea of what a big, dumb Frankenstein monster <laughs> would look like. Right. And that was it, going, going into the novel. And so I was quite surprised at how little of that is actually in the book. Yeah. Well, you know, was, I thought it was interesting is like all the Halloween stuff is all seemed to be based off of uh, Boris Karloff. Yeah. Because everything, everything, you know, you have the big dumb monster, the flathead. With the flathead. And the bolts in the side of the, yep. in the neck. Well, it's funny you should mention that because uh, I'll put in the show notes, there's an article titled something like how Universal recopyrighted Frankenstein. Because at the time when they did their 1931 ad- adaptation, the book was out of copyright mm-hmm. um, because it was, you know, it was a hundred years on. Yeah. And- they realized, well, there's not much description of the monster in the book. And so if we're going to create a monster with an iconic look, that, well, we hope will be iconic, then we're going to trademark it. Right. And so they will challenge trademark infringement if anyone produces a Frankenstein monster with the flat head, right. the, the kind of green skin or the bolt in the neck. So how did Adam Stanley get away with it? Because <laughs> he was pretty flat-headed, and I believe he yeah. had bolts. <laughs> was that Lurch? No, it was that from the Munsters. Maybe the monsters, yeah. yeah. They're, they're both the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but not the same thing, but they both look the same, yeah. So go. it's possible that there was an arrangement with Universal Studios to use it. Right. You know, yeah, a licensing agreement. Yeah. yeah. But so that's the reason, as I mentioned, that with The Curse of Frankenstein, the one the one with Christopher Lee as the monster, he looks very different. Mm-hmm. He looks, yeah, it's, it's quite creepy looking, but he looks nothing like the Boris Karloff monster. Right. And that's because of well, the neither do copyright. neither do most of them, so. True. So the, the thing that we're getting at is that uh, you know, there's Victor Frankenstein, and he was driven to create a monster, mm-hmm. and that monster was hideous. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely hideous, repulsive to look at. Uh, but more, more general, it's just Frankenstein because he's not Victor Frankenstein in all the uh, adaptations. <laughs> yeah, sometimes he's Henry Frankenstein. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's or, or Froderick. Froderick Frankenstein. <laughs> so I did. So. We're just about to kind of get into it, but there there was one other thing that I wanted to I wanted to give a shout out to Peter Bailey, oh. um, who had sent us I think he used the contact form on the website at pavementpodcast.com and got in touch and suggested that we cover Frankenstein, and we were kind of already planning to do it, but we do appreciate you know the uh, somebody seconding our ideas, and cool. So I kind of emailed back and forth with him about it, and. So his first one says, I was wondering if you would consider Frankenstein in all its various adaptations to be science fiction. The book and some of the movies use science equipment and themes to do something that's currently not possible, the creation of life. So I told him we'd be covering it and kind of asked his opinion of the book and adaptations. But I do think that's a really great question. And he he talks about it a little bit more. And he says, glad to hear you're covering Frankenstein. I last read the book a couple of years ago, and so far I can't think of a movie adaptation that was very true to the book. The book portrays the creation of Victor as a tragic, intelligent being that does some horrific things because he feels that he's being forced into it by the actions of Victor. Now, we'll talk about 
how valid that is. And then he says, most of the movies seem to go the unintelligent monster route, which is a shame. An intelligent being doing horrible things for self-preservation or because he is forced by circumstances is more interesting than a monster, in my opinion, because an intelligent being aware of the ramifications of his actions makes a better story. And I totally agree. Mm-hmm. So then, then he said, I think the best of the movies I've seen is 1935's Bride of Frankenstein, but agree there are just too many to try to watch them all. The Karloff version is a good example of the monster version of the story. Young Frankenstein is a very funny version, sort of between monster and intelligent. And then he says, I think of Frank- the Frankenstein story as being science fiction, not hard science fiction like the, he, he mentions the Mars books by Kim Stanley Robinson, or like the Martian. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says, but more like John Carter of Mars, you know, both, he kind of used two <laughs> Mars, Mars books analogies. And he said, both books about Mars, but very different approaches to the science part. And then he said, good job on the podcast. So thank you, Peter, for for communicating with us. And I know it's been quite some time since we actually did those emails. That was like back in July, I think. Um, but it's, yeah, it's always nice to hear from somebody and, and get their, their thoughts. But yes. I want to talk about that. Is Frankenstein science fiction? Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Very informative. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> on what On what basis? Because it uses science to do what's currently, what we believe is fictional at the moment, right? Okay. And that's to create life in a kind of a artificial matter, I suppose. But it also could be that, it also could be the perspective that Frankenstein is not really creating life, he's restoring life, which is possible. I see. Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. So maybe yeah, it wasn't possible back then. Actually, certainly, right. certainly it wasn't possible back then, but. Now we have the ability to restore life to a certain extent. Right. At some point, a heart transplant was science fiction. Uh, What do you think, Colin? Uh, Well, I want to pick a very small nit with what James said first. So he was creating life, but... So yeah, he definitely didn't create it from scratch, but he also didn't reanimate somebody that was already living. He created a unique being that had no knowledge of how to speak or talk. And presumably the brain that he stole to stick in that thing, you know, it was a used model. It should have had all those features already. Right. Right. Factory parts. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Limited yeah. warranty. Um, but yeah, you, we, we, we've had this discussion also about Brandon Sanderson's Reckoner series. Right. You know, is it science fiction or is it fantasy? So right. uh, I think this is a little simpler thing. If he had you know drawn a pentagram on the ground and did some oogie boogie and did the rain dance, we would say, well, <laughs> that's obviously fantasy. He's invoking magic. But because he's invoking you know the god of electrons, I think we're all saying science fiction. Okay. Also, so, probably. I'm going to appeal to experts here, right? Experts consider this to be science fiction. Yes. Well, we're, we're, we're nothing if not vulnerable to the appeal to authority. I, I do think it's science fiction in, in a sense. Uh, you know, I'm, in one sense, I kind of go, nope, sorry, it's impossible. It's kind of outside the realm of, of science fiction. On the other hand, to me, I look at it as inspiring a whole genre of science fiction. And to me, that genre is the... AI or robot uprising, where man creates something that then tries to destroy him. And so that's like, I see it as the progenitor of that entire genre, subgenre. Right. But like, if science fiction, as Harlan Ellison says, science fiction should ask questions, right? And the question in Frankenstein is, should man play God? And that's very similar to what you have when anytime there's robots or androids being created. Mm-hmm. Is, should we be doing this? So which I think is cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we've beat around the bush for 15 minutes here, so <laughs> maybe we should actually start talking about the book. Maybe we yeah. should delve inside. Yeah. A- as I said, this this was one that I read a few years ago. I decided, you know what? It's Halloween time. I was at my mom's house, and she had uh, like a Barnes & Noble 
classics copy of it. And I thought, oh, you know what, I'll pick that up. And I was quite delighted with, with what I read. And it was very different from the images that I had in my head about what Frankenstein was. Um, because I remember reading it and going, there was no lightning employed anywhere. And like the one constant that I had seen across references to Frankenstein was he's brought to, to life via a lightning bolt. Right. So that was just one, one little thing. And you guys, this is your first time, right? I made you read it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about if you thank me for that or not. <laughs> but the background of the book is interesting because it comes out of this famous meeting in Geneva with Lord Byron and Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley, although she wasn't Mary Shelley at the time. Um, she, what, I guess she was just Mary Wollstonecraft at that time. They had this thing where they're like, okay, let's all create a, a ghost story or a, a frightening story. And out of that came Frankenstein, which of course is is huge in terms of just when you look at the 50 plus adaptations of it, but it also produced Polidori produced the first vampire story, which is an undeniable influence on Bram Stoker when he wrote Dracula. Mm. And so it's interesting that you had those two things grow up out of that one meeting, that one weekend, which I think is cool. That is cool. And Mary Shelley was inspired by these macabre demonstrations and experiments that people like uh, Luigi Galvani and his, I think it was his nephew, Aldini, um, with animal electricity, where they would be, apply currents to dead limbs of frogs and people, <laughs> and they would um, contract and, and look like they were coming to life. And Aldini evidently did it with like recently deceased executed criminals. And it just kind of makes you think... Because they're okay to experiment on. But it kind of makes you go, okay, this is life before television. <laughs> Like, I'm going to go over to the medical college and watch this guy uh, shock corpses. Um, yeah. Could you bring right? Exactly. Very true. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. But when we're talking, when we talk about the 2015 version, I I did like that uh, Frankenstein, you know, went to the college to do his little demonstration, and that's probably what it was like. Only they were very well attended when when Aldini did them. Right. So one thing I wondered about the book is. Does it betray a certain suspicion of science or scientists? I I think it justifies more than anything, right? Oh, really? Because it well, it addresses it addresses the question of you know should we be doing this stuff, and I I think it defends science to a certain degree, especially all the all the different conversations that they have at the college about you know science yeah. is okay and stuff like that. Um, and but you know what is it? Knowledge is power, but only through God or something like that from the, one of those. Yeah. The Browning one had that in there, but yeah, you have science that's okay. And then you have science or from their perspective, science Mm -hmm. that goes too far. And I I think maybe they were trying to illustrate science gone too far. And there is a certain amount of talking about how he was almost goaded into studying the natural sciences. Yeah. Because in the book, it talks about him studying um, Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus or um, these, these, alchemists you know discredited alchemists Mm -hmm. um and that was kind of the Mm -hmm. background to his actual scientific learning as well it kind of colored i think his view yeah his dad picks up the book and he goes are you reading this crap yeah and if you tell that to a teenager probably (laughs) in any era they're going to just read it all the more true and then he decides to to put it aside and he goes to go to college and says oh i've read these books and one of the professors talks him down and the other professor starts to encourage him And so naturally, he gravitates toward the one that encourages him, and he happens to be a natural philosopher as well. Yeah. 
And then gives them like 20 books to yeah. read. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Here, read this and this and this and this. <laughs> I realized that we did not do the story, which we always do. But with Frankenstein, I'm not sure that it's really necessary um, because it's so culturally prevalent. Right. Everybody knows about Frankenstein. I don't know. I said that same thing before you even told me to read the book because I was trying to get out of reading the book. You're like, no, you got to read it because it's different than what you're culturally aware of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But everybody knows so. the basic story, right? That the, the the details. Frankenstein creates a monster. Yeah, Frankenstein that's creates the only a monster. Thing. The nature of the monster—that's what's different. I think that's yeah. what's most different to well, me. And how he gets driven there, I think, is important too. Yeah. Well, so you know, I'll I'll go on record and say I really really enjoy the book. I've read it twice now. I will read it again several more times. I'm sure. Um, this could be something that I I would queue up and read every Halloween if there weren't other things to read. I remember when I was talking to you guys about it. I'm like I. I'm not sure if there were any parts of it that were a bit of a slog. There definitely are. Um, and I discovered them this time, and it's most of the way into the book. And to me, the framing narrative is a little bit sloggy. But the main story, I find just just very readable. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a big thumbs up for me, but I want to I wanna hear what you guys think. James, I've, I've made my feelings rather clear on this. So if you want to say something <laughs> of, of balance or True. difference, you might okay. want to jump in now. Fair enough. I'll uh, I'll go on record and say I'm medium like the book, okay. just right between Colin and Seth, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually liked the framing narrative, uh, telling the story through the letters that the captain was writing. Uh, was it was it was novel to me at the time. I don't think I've read a story like that before. Hmm. But then again, also other other stories that do kind of similar things, like uh, Robo Apocalypse did a similar thing through the journals, mm -hmm. right? Right. So I, I like that kind of thing. I think it's kind of neat, original ish i liked the monster actually the the part of the story where we learn uh, all about the monster was probably my favorite part of that book you learn about what happened to him after he left the lab right yeah yeah, yeah. how he wandered through the forest and came on across the cottage and learned french yeah <laughs> and eventually english i guess or german <laughs> yeah and uh, or german or something yeah in switzerland and, it's uh, up for grabs but his whole side of the story i found because uh, that's what was new to me yeah uh, was his side of the story. I had never been exposed to the uh, almost, I guess, intelligent monster, right? Yeah. Well, the intelligent monster is is completely outside of our cultural context. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that's so that was that was what was new to me in novel, and I liked, I enjoyed that part of it. Mm -hmm. um, the, I did find all the world building stuff a bit sluggish. You know, like Frankenstein constantly describing the mountains and the scenery. It's like. Yeah, okay, I get it. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. I didn't need all that, though. You know, it's very Tolkien-esque. Right, and that's <laughs> the part of the book that's a slog for me, is when he and Henry kind of go off on a on their little vacation, and, mm. and he keeps describing where they are, and I'm like, okay, yeah, let's move on. Right. You're Just just tell us you're in Scotland. That's fine. Yeah. We, we, we can get that. We're, we're good. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I guess then the, the question for you, James, before we move on to Colin, is did you... How did you feel about the monster? Did you feel bad for him? Did you think he was awful? What, what do you think? I kind of felt he was justified. Okay. I have to say. Yeah. Well, that uh, And, and mis misunderstood, I guess. There you go. Not so much justified, but misunderstood. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I did kind of feel bad for him because um, he may he might have not taken the correct route, I suppose, to uh, fix himself, I guess. Yeah. But Multiple murders, not usually the right decision. Right. Right. <laughs> But I did feel like he was misunderstood and could have taken a better route, though. You know? Okay. All right. So one one last thing, and then we'll switch over to Colin. Do you okay. do you think it's a good book? I mean, do you recommend other people to read it? 
essentially. I would recommend people read it at least once to get an idea of what the real Frankenstein was. Okay. The, the real story behind the monster. Sure. Because I'm, I'm sure most people are only aware of the monster we're all culturally aware of. We're going to have to decide, though, what the real story is. And with that, I That's think we true. should move to Colin. You know, no matter what you ask me, I'm going to say that the real story is the book. Right. No, I know. <laughs> but what is the story in the book? Because not everybody agrees on the nature of the monster and the man. Oh, well. Um, so we will we will talk about that. We don't have to do that right mm. now. But Well, let, let me talk about how I feel about the book. Yeah. So I really did not like the book. I found it difficult to read the prose. And hmm. I was so confused because, you know, I, I don't have any problems reading older books with, you know, stilted language and long prose. And I'm always defending Tolkien against Seth from his, you know, attacks yep, against right. that. So I went and I picked another book in the same genre written just a little bit later. It was a contemporary of uh, Dracula. It was called The Beetle. I don't remember the author, but mm -hmm. read through it, had no problems at all. I think it's particularly the book Frankenstein. Um, and in fact, I talked so much about the language to Seth that we have a bet that we're going to do later <laughs> in this podcast where I'm going to put up, a ver uh, not a, a verse, but a phrase from the book and challenge him to try and read it. Okay. Well, maybe, okay, you go ahead and continue with, with your thoughts on the okay. book. I do have a passage that I want to read, and then I'll also do okay. yours. And, and so I'm kind of conflicted. The book is considered a classic, not only mm -hmm. uh, of science fiction, but of literature in general. And so I started to think, well, what is it that I don't like? And the, I don't like anything any of the characters did. <laughs> wow. You know, it's, it's like watching a series of train wrecks from, the, from beginning to end to where Victor <laughs> creates the monster which is a living, feeling creature, to right. the monster, mm -hmm. which is driven out of the town by people that judge him based on his looks. And if, if mm -hmm. that isn't something right. that happens in today's world with Black Lives Matter, I don't know what is. Sure. So then he, he educates himself uh, from an ignorant bunch of peasants in the, uh, in the Alps who love it when he cuts, cuts all their firewood, but apparently doesn't hear him cut all the firewood. Otherwise, they would know that he's right. doing it. Right. <laughs> they drive him out. So now he now he can talk and read. And he goes to Victor Frankenstein and commits his his first pair of murders and then goes into extortion and then goes into more murder. And so now I have this <laughs> this feeling thinking creature. What do you mean first pair of murders? Uh he's responsible for two deaths. Yes. He d well, he does not he kill Justine. He doesn't commit a second yeah. murder. He just kills he just commits one he, murder. He could have confessed to the murder and allowed Justine to live. Yeah. That doesn't mean he actually committed the murder. No, but he's responsible for her death, though so is Victor. Yes. Because Vic well, Victor he, could have fallen on the sword. Then Colin should pick his wording better. <laughs> yeah. And so then there's this this comedy, tragic comedy of errors between the monster and Victor throughout the rest of the book, which costs most of the lives of all the other characters. And oh, yeah. uh, it, it ends with a bunch of moaning and groaning about how the monster has caused Victor to die, and he's going to go build himself a pyre in the middle of Eagle the Arctic saving. where there's no trees to build a pyre with. And they had to use <laughs> kerosene to light the trees because they were so cold Yeah, in one of the movies that we watched. And so I just, I hated it. I didn't like, hmm. I didn't like the plot. But you read it twice. I did read it twice just to make sure. I challenged him to reread it. <laughs> and I did. And I liked it. I would say though, in, in the defense of the book, at least it's short. It was 170 <laughs> pages. It was awful. It's relatively brief. Yeah, but that's kind of short for a novel. It's like eating all your calories with carrots every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you could do it and you would stay alive, but you sure wouldn't enjoy it. Right. <laughs> so 
Yeah, I mean, you can read the book and you can apply it to things because it talks about the human condition and our society in mm-hmm. several ways, few of which are flattering. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah I, I think they could have done the same thing in about 65 pages. You know, maybe the Reader's Digest or the Cliff Notes version. Right. Um, uh, the junior novelization, probably. <laughs> maybe the <Right>. junior novelization. <laughs> yeah. Um, I dislike the book enough that when Seth says he would try and slot time open in October, that I will I will push for more podcasting in October to prevent it from happening. <laughs> I'll do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is, James is saying, you know, yeah, you should read it once. And Colin is, is like, I will actively prevent people from reading it. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, I was going to say before we moved to Colin, I, I uh, don't know that I would read this book again. Um, right. But I would... I would recommend reading it at least once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, take a few shots, get through it. Well, it's it's one of those things that's on. Like, <laughs> have you shots. read these hundred books? You know that that it makes those lists frequently. And so, mm-hmm. so I feel like it's good to be culturally aware of it. Um, my sister Katie actually just recently read the book for the first time, and she really enjoyed it. So I think I think there's something to the way Mary Shelley writes and the way she writes characters that either appeals or it doesn't. Mm. And for me, it did, and for Colin, it didn't. And and you know, your mileage may vary. Well, I just hate watching all the characters do stupid things. Not just stupid right. things, but but like the worst possible thing. Yeah, but but it's not something you could. It, I guess I should say it is something you could see happening though. Oh yeah, and it does right. happen today, even up yeah, till today. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's it's sad that you know the monster went into these villages and got driven out. Or mo- actually, what's worse is the cottage part. I I I have a hard. I was totally flabbergasted that he got kicked out of the cottage. Yeah, that was just so, horrible. So to me, the way I look at it is almost every decision made by anyone in the book is the most selfish decision possible. Right. Um. You know, the villagers driving him out because he's ugly. We were talking before we recorded about that. That phrase repulsive physiognomy and physiognomy is this pseudoscience that basically attributed characteristics to people based on their looks so if you had ugly looks that meant you were a bad person and it doesn't <laughs> it's not always true anyway not universally true there there can be very ugly people who are who are wonderful people and very good looking people who are terrible actors actresses podcasters and supermodels right. well yeah and podcasters. And yes. podcasters. <laughs> we have repub- uh, re- re- repugnant physiognomy. Yes. I thought you were going to say Republican physiognomy, which is just as bad as Democratic when we would all agree and vote about it. Right. But yeah. you were mentioning my, my take in the book. And so mm-hmm. in addition to that, one of the things that bothers me about the book is I think that culturally we have completely misinterpreted Miss Shelley's original intent. Uh-huh. In that, there is no monster. Right. And you're not the only person. You're not the first person to to come up with this idea. But I like that you're sticking with it. Yeah. I don't believe there is a monster. <laughs> we only have one narrator who is not the most trustworthy guy in the world to begin with. Right. And that's, it's Victor talking to uh, Walton, right? Yeah. That's the whole story. Yeah. So really, you, your whole theory turns on the idea that Walton is an unreliable narrator. Because if Walton is reporting events as they transpired, he actually saw the monster. But my thinking is, to right. bolster your theory, mm-hmm. Walton loved Victor Frankenstein. Yeah. He he was, I mean, he, he mourned when he died because he had just, he wanted a friend and he found Victor Frankenstein. And so I think you could make the argument that he invented the monster to protect Frankenstein's legacy. I don't think he invented the monster. I think he's talking about the specter of the monster hovering over Victor's body at the very, very end. Interesting. Okay. 
I like it actually. Yeah. I mean, I don't buy it, but I still like it. I, I, that, to you, that's the only way you can interpret it. Yeah. It made it somewhat interesting to me. This idea that here is a man that is chasing nothing in mm-hmm. the far north, trying mm-hmm. to get away from all the problems that he created, being yeah. driven mad yeah. by his thirst for knowledge, and maybe the last sane part of him, seeing Walton, seeing that same drive in another man, he was willing to sacrifice his entire crew to go to the north, mm-hmm. and in the end, convinces him to stop. Yeah. I mean, so I think I think there's definitely something to this theory, right? And it explains some of Victor's actions. Um, for instance, not stepping in and preventing Justine from dying. Because he could have, you know, with a word, he could have basically just said, look, Justine is completely innocent. I am at least partially at fault. I hang for this. Justine goes free. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He made the selfish choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a choice out of fear as well, if you take the straight reading that there is a monster. Well, whether there is or isn't, right? Yeah. He's responsible. Right. So I, th- I think we're to the point that I can read the passage that I want to read. Because when I originally read this passage... I turned the page and then I went back and I went, wait, did he just bring the monster to life? And that was it? Because, you know, everybody's seen clips of, you know, alive, alive, it's alive, you know? Um, and well, I was I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. There was really no, like nothing. He had some life-giving machine. Right. He, he, inact- he activated it and that was it. Yeah. Like there was really nothing to Frank, uh, the monster coming to life or the creature. Right. I've been collecting clips of the various movies saying it's alive, and I'm going to put those all up at the front. Nice, um, nice. Um, because because there's some there's some great ones. The one from Colin Clive Don't in forget 1931. The scream. Right. Yes. Uh, I don't know about the scream. That that usually doesn't Aww. doesn't translate very well. Gotta have a good scream. We'll see. But uh, yeah, the the passage. I I, I want to read this, and and I think it's a beautifully written passage as well. So you know, I like the prose, and so this is to me a good example. And Colin, you'll have to tell me if you agree, okay. and then you plug ears, Colin. <laughs> plug ears. <laughs> Colin's going la 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 la. <laughs> All right. So here it is. This is the climactic, bringing the creature to life. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. <laughs> Nice. (laughs) With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. So, yeah, no big spark of anything right. you know the creature opens its eye that's that's it you know the instruments of life it does mention a spark of being and we know that mary shelley was inspired by galvani and so it makes sense that electricity would be at play um mm-hmm. but we'll have to talk about when we when we talk about the different um adaptations you know some of them use lightning and some of them don't which is interesting but they all use electricity yes mm-hmm. so yeah. colin do you, do you have that choice bit for me so I don't even have a section. I have one sentence. One sentence. One sentence. You're going to put it into the Skype chat? I'm going to put it in the Skype chat. Let me paste it out of here. (laughs) So one of the things that that was a challenge was trying to read it and get the phrasing right for me. Oh, that that can be a problem. Yeah, I think that part of the problem was I read it as an ebook where Mm -hmm. it would would hyphenate and break in odd places. Mm -hmm. And the other one was it was just, you know, way out of my experience. So... I just, I want you to read this in your natural voice <laughs> and let's have it. Can I pre-read it? Nope. You, you, you just, okay, right off now? the cuff. Okay. 
At that age, I became acquainted with the celebrated poets of our own country, but it was only when it had ceased to be in my power to derive its most important benefits from such a conviction that I perceived the necessity of becoming acquainted with more languages than that of my native country. That is a long sentence. Yes. I don't know, though. I, I like the way it flows. Yeah. Yes. And if you flow it right, it reads really well. I, I had to read that a couple, three times to pick it up. You can miss the point. Like, you can lose track of, wait, what What were we talking about here? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Where, That's the problem with run-on sentences, right? You, yeah. <laughs> or really long sentences, at least. Where basically yeah. what the sentence means, means is, I learned other languages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? and, and, well, no, he became acquainted with the necessity of learning other languages. Yes. So one of the things I'm going to put in the show notes is uh, Crash Course Literature, uh, with John Green, you know he did he did a two parter <laughs> on uh, Frankenstein, which is very good. Um, I oh, think okay. it was titled "Don't Reanimate Corpses." <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Anything else to say about the book? Let's, let's take care of some other you know cultural myths. Okay, there is no castle. The first time right. he builds it in an apartment, right. and when he goes, he works alone. There's no assistant. There is no Igor yes, or yes. Igor. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> or Fritz. He or Fritz. is. He's Swiss. And he has gone to Ingolstadt, right. which caused me to have the phrase, you know, what happens in Ingolstadt stays in Ingolstadt. Right. What else was there? Yeah, no, no lightning bolt, as far as we can tell. No lightning bolt, no electric no eels. No incoherent mumbling. There is, yeah, no incoherent mumbling. <laughs> Actually, that's not true, because the monster did learn to speak. But I don't recall a, a line that went... No, 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 there was no written line so, that way. So there you go. So. It reminded me of when we did our <laughs> podcast about iRobot, not the... Isaac Asimov version, but the Eando Binder one. Mm -hmm. um, that first story, I Robot, with Adam Link, the robot. How many times am I going to say robot in this sentence? Oh, yeah. Robot. Uh, robot. Yeah, robot. That's right, robot. Where he kind of had to learn to walk and learn to talk after, right. after he was created. And it was very Frankenstein. And if I recall correctly, Adam Link actually read the book Frankenstein. So I, I, I kind of did feel the same way about that story, too. It was very Frankenstein-esque. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where in some of the adaptations, you get the idea that I have a brain here, it has some preloaded software. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I already knew how to speak and or at least was capable of speech. But in two of the movies, he also ends up choosing the wrong brain. True. He's supposed yeah. to pick one brain, <laughs> Igor or the assistant screws it up. And so he takes a different Igor. Brain. Yeah. Yes. Now, it's Igor. there was one thing when <laughs> when I read the book, there was... There was a plot point I was expecting that was not there, and that was the bride. I was expecting Frankenstein to create a bride for the monster. And so when he didn't do it, that, that subverted my expectation. And I think the reason was, and it's a spoiler for one of the ones we'll cover later on today, uh, I think I'd already seen the Brana adaptation. Oh. Mm. So I was, okay. I was surprised when that didn't happen. It, it makes a certain sense, which is one of the things I like about that film. So I and I liked the idea, like the science fiction idea, of let's let's roll things back, dial it back. Frankenstein does make the mate for the monster. The monster and his mate go off into the wilds of South America, as they said they would, and they somehow manage to be fertile, and they begin <laughs> producing a new species of human, superpowered humans. Yeah, and I like I like like the idea of. A couple thousand years later, that there, there, there are the the Franks and the non-Franks. <laughs> Frank Apocalypse. Frank Apocalypse. Yes. But you know, he actually does create the bride, right? But he then destroys it once he realizes that he cannot fully trust right. them, right? So this is this is one of those things though where you get into the 
how sciency is the science fiction because the idea that you're going to reanimate corpses and that there's been no degradation of tissues you know that they would be fertile that it'd be even possible for them to to reproduce um it is completely out of the realm of believability for me but then so is the entire endeavor yes right and maybe maybe this is where we turn to talk about Frankenstein in adaptation, because what did we want to see from something like that? What should we see? And I have very definite ideas about what I want to see from a Frankenstein adaptation, and I don't think I've seen it. And so we will talk about that, though. Okay. Well, why don't you start off with that? Because I'm curious to hear what you had to say, because I, I would go in with no expectation and just watch the right. movie. So. And I can do that. But once, I, once I'd seen a few movies, I thought, I, what I came to, to conclude was that I am opposed, in principle, to faithful adaptations of Frankenstein. <laughs> um, because of the whole idea of the reanimation is so absurd to me that the movie has to either put a veneer of scientific accuracy over it or completely gloss over it and, and just go with it. And I guess I think I prefer the glossing over it part where you're like, okay, this is your buy-in. You either buy that I'm reanimating corpses or you don't. I don't, but I'm willing to suspend my disbelief right up into the point where you try to make it look sciencey. And when you try and make it look sciencey, it seems ridiculous to me. You know, the amniotic fluid medium, you know. And electric eels. And electric right. eels, you know. It, <laughs> yes. Oh, the, the tissue viability thing is is my problem. Because even today, and I'll put a link in the show notes, because there there was a recent kind of breakthrough in organ transplants. I think I, I posted on the Facebook page, the, mm -hmm. the heart in a box. Because mm -hmm. right now, if you want to get a heart transplant, it is coming from a patient who was recently still breathing, like from a brain dead patient, they pull that heart out of it while it's still beating because the tissues break down so quickly that the heart is not viable outside a very, very small window. And so going hours after somebody had died from hanging, that heart has been starved of oxygen for several hours. It's not going to start beating ever again. It's not possible. And so that's, that's like my big hang up. And so what I want to see in an adaptation is something technological or supernatural that allows me to get past that. And so like technological would be like nanomachines or something where. But now you're kind of limiting the scope of the movie though, right? I am. Yeah. Cause you're, you're now you're looking at things that you know right now in your present time are impossible, but could be possible tens, 20, hundred years from now or whatever. Right. I mean, how, how would have using a cell phone looked to somebody a thousand years ago? They would have called you a sorcerer and burned you at the stake. It was not possible in the 18th century to do what Frankenstein did. We're pretty sure about that. How do you know? Beyond How something you know? supernatural. That's, that's what I'm saying. So, <laughs> so like Dean Koontz's Frankenstein. I don't know if you guys have read any of those. No. Okay. There's kind of the implication that there was something special to the lightning bolt, like it carried a soul with it or something in those books. And, and so I like that okay. idea, that there, that there was something supernatural that happened. I think in I, Frankenstein, they're using some kind of nanotechnology. I can't remember, um, because they're trying mm. to recreate what Victor Frankenstein I did way remember. back. No, no, it's supernatural as well. But I think the, the point is, though, that you're, you're presenting the question, can this happen, right? That's, that's the whole right. point here. It doesn't matter whether or not it could have been done in the 18th century or the 20th century. It matters century. to me, though. Or the 21st century. <laughs> yes, well, your opinion is wrong. So what you're saying, Seth, is that you think that... The movies get too hung up on the creation process rather than the moral dilemmas and failures which drive the story. Precisely. Like, I don't want to see an adaptation that shows the creation of the monster. Fair enough. I want, I want to see everything after that. So it should almost be, you know, I'm going to borrow my own term, it should be like elliptical sex. 
right? Frankenstein <laughs> should go in the room and then we should see time elapse and then he should open the door and, and say, it's alive! It's alive! I guess to a certain p- certain point, I would. Uh, I guess I could see your perspective there, where you don't want to, you don't want them to focus so much on the science, or the lack thereof, um, and go for the the the, ch- the meat of the story, which is the more implications of creating such a being in the first place. To to me, that's the 1994 movie. Fair enough. With Luke Goss, 2004. Yeah, the the 2004 miniseries with Luke Goss. I think that's exactly what we're talking about. The the thrust of the uh, the whole drive of the movie is about the the plot, not about the the creation. Right. You know, Brana is more about creation yeah. and then the sacrifices he'll make in service to it. So really Seth is against crappy science. Yeah. Which I which I can't disagree with that one. Yeah. Well you think about nineteen thirty one and it's all about the creation of the monster, not about what the monster does. Right. Nineteen thirty five is nineteen thirty five gets more into the moral side, the moral story side of it, which I think might have been what Seth was trying to say when he was arguing for its canonicity. Yes. Is that the the Bride of Frankenstein deals more with the moral dilemma of what you what what do you do with this guy uh, more so than Frankenstein did, and so so I would agree with you, Seth, that uh, focusing on crap science makes it for a kind of a crap movie. Yeah, I'm kind of of two minds about it though because I I almost want them to take a run at it to make it seem plausible, and on the other hand, sure. then I go, nope, sorry, it didn't work. <laughs> but the movie should just go ahead and present the quite kind of present the question, is this possible? And then go ahead and say yes, because it's science fiction. It can do right. whatever the hell you want. And go with the more... And then and then continue with that, with the kind of more implications of it, which is what a lot of science fiction True. tries to do, yeah, I yeah. think. Well, we should probably, at this point, now that we're getting on an hour into this, uh, start talking about at least one of the movies in more specific terms. And right. I think we're... Yeah, we're, we're going to have to... Uh, keep it pretty brief on all of them. I, I felt like sure. if we were going to dwell on any one topic the most, it should be the book. Um, but we can talk about you know these movies. Yeah. What what did we like about them? What what didn't work? Um, Do you want me to uh, start a timer and give you thirty seconds? <laughs> <for a movie? laughs> no, let's 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 just go off the cuff. And we can keep it sure. informal here. Let's talk about uh, nineteen thirty one then. Yeah. So nineteen thirty one introduces our culture's understanding of Frankenstein. It does the, the bad scientist. But no right. Igor, uh, you create yeah you create a monster and it's a classic kind of monster, not a reasoning thinking being, but something that's wait no there wasn't there wasn't an Igor and his yes. name was Fritz. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. he had an assistant. Yes, but not he, he turned he turned the creature into a monster. In my opinion, yes, you do have that in in the Universal movie. You have that interesting moment when uh, you have I can't remember what the doctor's name is, what the professor's name is, but he's introducing the concept of a bad brain, like a criminal brain and a normal brain. Right, <laughs> right. That's funny because Emily and I were just talking about because we watched that movie this morning, and and the, when when Fritz went to go get the brains, he had normal and abnormal. Right, um, but he didn't say normal abnormal. The the doctor he said criminal brain. Right, which is like really that's kind of. Kind of stupid. Kind of ignorant, actually, I think. But yeah. The implication there is that normal brains can't be criminal, which is completely wrong. And all criminals have abnormal brains, which is not right either. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no <laughs> neuroscientist, but, um, but I'm not sure that yes. there is a criminal brain and a normal brain. Right, exactly. Brain. That's, that's the and, point. And yeah. that it's deterministic. <laughs> or whether or not there's a normal brain to begin with. Yeah. yeah, yeah true. No, it's cer- yeah, certainly not amongst us three. Yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> normal brains present. So this is, this is the Universal Studios Mm-hmm. Frankenstein. And they had made, I think they did Dracula maybe a year earlier. 
and and it was a huge okay. phenomenon and so i think they they started trying to figure out what else they could adapt right. and you know and they, they turned frankenstein into a monster movie right? they did and and they made him big and dumb and that's that's where the mm. cultural yeah. you know what everybody thinks of you know what i did like about the 1931 movie was the intro that like that guy came out on stage and told the audience you might not want to watch yes. this or <laughs> i warned you <laughs> yeah that was good so as we were getting you know approaching this season and we were going to do this i picked up at best buy a six film collection of the universal monster films and so it has dracula frankenstein bride of frankenstein the wolfman the mummy and the invisible man invisible man and so my wife and i sat down and watched dracula and just realized immediately they do not make them like they used to because <laughs> there was a lot of movie left on the table with Dracula and definitely with Frankenstein as well, mm -hmm. where I'm like, oh, oh, we're done. That was, that was the movie. Okay. Um, that was a very weird roll credits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The windmills burning down. Boom. Yeah. It, it's yeah. like it was 70% of the story. I mean, it's not right. even 70% of the book because there's, you know, most of it is not there. Did, I can't remember. Right. I did the 1931 one have the framing narrative at all, James. No. Okay. Which I actually approve no. of. I don't care for the framing narrative. I don't. I don't see why it's necessary in a film adaptation. Um, but Colin probably would disagree. I think the film adapt. I, mm, I think it would be necessary in a film adaptation that went the way that Colin interpreted the book. If they did something like that, that would have been. That would be great. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing an adaptation that presented Colin's version of events. But I think yeah. it would be considered like a ripoff of Fight Club or of. Dr. Jekyll yeah. and Mr. Hyde. Right. I did mention earlier the 1910 uh, Edison Company silent film of Frankenstein. I did want to tell you guys about it um, because it's got that overly stylized, overly dramatic uh, feel to it, like like silent films do, with little title cards that come up and tell you, you know, he, the monster oh. <laughs> comes to life, you know, all these things. It's like 10 minutes long. Nice. It was evidently believed to be lost for a long time. And then they found, oh, I can't wow. remember what material it was that they found a version of it and it doesn't look very good with the restoration you know it kind of it kind of goes from mm -hmm. black and white to kind of very yellow at places but mm. the interesting thing is at the end victor frankenstein looks in what you think is a window and sees the monster and then the as the scene progresses the monster slowly disappears and resolves into victor frankenstein and you realize it's a mirror Oh, wow. And so it's very much, to me, bolstering mm. your theory about there never having been a real monster. Right. Um, but, of course, there's also not, like, the murders and stuff. There's not time to, to go into that. I think um, right. Elizabeth is attacked but not killed, and that's that holds for the 1931 film as well, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. where where almost nobody died, actually. Um, yeah, just the little girl. Just the little girl. Just because she didn't float. <laughs> Right? It's, Jeez, it's not my fault you couldn't. How is he supposed to know you couldn't swim? What are you doing living around a lake and not teaching your kid how to swim? That's <laughs> right. That, that's on the dad. And it wasn't. It wasn't murder, right? It was. He didn't. It wasn't on purpose. It was manslaughter. Yeah. So that was a 1931 film. So to me, the 1931 film holds kind of the same way you said, James, with the book. Where I think people should watch it, but I'm yeah. not sure that I would watch it again. Right. Um, I did like the makeup effects. I thought they were outstanding. And Colin Clive, who played. Victor Frankenstein, or sorry, Henry, Henry Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, I thought I thought was good, and I mean he he played an excellent mad scientist, and his name's and Colin. His name's Colin. There's not a lot of us around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so then we talk about 1935. I did like Boris Karloff though. He made it, he he did a pretty good monster. Okay. So anyhow, moving on. We I 
recommended that The Bride of Frankenstein also be watched because I felt that it <laughs> that to get a more full adaptation of Frankenstein, you needed both movies. And so we'll discuss if I'm off my rocker about okay. that. You're off your rocker about well, that. Well, before Colin says you're completely off your rocker, I'll say you're not completely off your rocker. <laughs> <laughs> Checks in the mail, James. I accept cash as well. Okay. Uh, or, or beer, right? <laughs> or beer, yes. We'll I'll accept beer. payment in beer. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think the Bride of Frankenstein deals more with the moral side of Frankenstein's story. Mm-hmm. You know, he actually comes, well, somebody, not not he, but a different doctor comes with the bride. and But but also, too, the you, ha- you have the blind man section of yeah. the story. The original novel, I guess, is uh, part of this movie. Colin, what did you think? Uh, I guess on hindsight. So Seth said that was, there was a lot more canon in Bride of Frankenstein. And so I was right. looking for stuff. And he was looking for a lot more. A lot when there really more, was just a little right? bit more. Uh, and you could say there is more canon in 1935 than 1931. But that's the same thing as saying there is more food content in Burger King than McDonald's. You know, it's just, it's, it's, there's not a lot there. Uh, (laughs) I think they could have made it a lot better if they dropped that second evil scientist, Dr. Pretorius. I would have let the monster be the real baddie here and then, and then develop him further. Let him be fully, uh, let him talk well. Yeah. I, so when, when I said that there was more, it was more canonical together, you know, we kind of got our wires crossed on that because I wasn't saying that it faithfully adapted a bunch of other stuff. What I was saying was it had more of the flavor of the novel because like it included... Like if the two movies had been one or something? Yeah. Like yeah. if you had combined the best parts of those, then then you had more of the book because you had the scenes with the blind man and him learning to speak. Now, it was, it was done differently, of course, and... It was done kind of humorously, where um, he, <laughs> where they're sitting at the table, sparking up a doobie. Um, <laughs> smoke, smoke, <Ooh>. good. <laughs> so it's the original stoner film, Bride of Frankenstein. Um, but but once again, you know, the bride is brought to life, and then the movie ends. Oh, but she she does something pretty important, I think. Screams. She screams and rejects Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. You mean rejects the monster? Yes. Rejects the monster, yeah. <laughs> it's impossible to not do that, right? It is. It's very hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's easier to think of him as Adam. Mm-hmm. Or uh, in my notes, I started calling him TM. So he had The monster? No, that's short for Thomas Magnum. Oh, okay. Gotcha. There was um, recently on The Flash television show, there's an episode with Gorilla Grodd who finds yes. himself the only one of his kind, and he asks for more to be made. And it reminded me of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So- I thought that was interesting. Anything else? Uh, I, you know, I like the Brian Frankenstein better than the original one. But again, I'm not sure that I'll rewatch it necessarily. Yeah. Well, on the price that you decide to, you own it. So yeah. Yeah. And and it's, it's kind of one of those things like the Lost World Jurassic Park, where right. they say, okay, here's how the thing ended, or so you think the monster's dead. No, he's not, and he's going to drown a few people right at the beginning of the movie. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Although. There was a framing narrative on The Bride of Frankenstein because it showed it. This was another thing that I was going to say was more canonical. It shows the weekend in Geneva with Mary and Lord Byron and Percy. Oh, right. Yeah. Which I thought, I thought that was kind of weird, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what is this? It was confusing at first because I didn't get what was going on. But. So the same <laughs> actress who played Mary Shelley in that was the one who was the bride. Right. Really? Yeah. I didn't notice. She was quite a looker. It's like the, the technology improved. By the time by the time they created the female, yeah, fewer stitches. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. Are we going to go in chronological order because the next one would be Young Frankenstein? Young Frankenstein. 
Nah, let, let's skip it and bring it in last. So the next one would be 1994 then. Yes. And this is the Kenneth Branagh adaptation produced by Francis Ford Coppola. Actually, it's quite the A-list on this movie. It is. Yeah. 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 And um, we were noticing people who were on Downton Abbey now. Yes. Because there's Carson <laughs> was in there. Lord Grantham was in there. I forgot that in the Luke Goss one, in the 2004 one, there was um, the guy who played Matthew. He, he played yes, Henry. He, is, he was one. Henry. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you guys think of the, the Brana adaptation? I think the Brana adaptation had a, had one of the better monsters, had really good movie makeup. It mm. did. Yeah. I liked, I liked De Niro as the monster. And he was fairly lucid and easy to understand. Right. Uh, you know, he made his own demands. He didn't need a mouthpiece. Right. Like in 1935. And he was properly ugly. He was properly yes. ugly. Yeah. He was good yes. and proper ugly. I think of the adaptations, I think De Niro was probably my favorite portrayal of the monster. They, there were some changes made, and one, one of the main changes, like, to me, the weakest point of the book, well, I don't know if it's the weakest point of the book. This is something, something I think, Colin, that you said bothered you, was the whole, when he's learning to speak, the, the way he's learning to read and write and speak is because there is a non-French speaker who is in this cottage, mm-hmm. and she's learning, she's being taught language right and that's that's how he learns it where in the brana adaptation i think in the cottage there's a young family rather than a brother and sister and their old blind father he's the grandfather mm-hmm. they're a couple and then they have a couple children and the mom is teaching one of the kids how to read and write yes and that's right. to me that's it's a change that makes sense um i, I don't know if that's something to, does that offend you that that she wasn't a, a foreign lady i would rather it be more canonical but it certainly works <laughs> they didn't replace it with something stupid Right. True. But I don't see it as, as any better than trying to teach someone else to read or write. Yeah. I was trying to think what the other change was. Well, the method of creating the monster. A lot of people like lightning. Mm-hmm. Yes. But in the Brana movie, they use electric eels and amniotic fluid. Yes. And I may have mentioned this, but my wife is a midwife. She knows yeah. a lot about amniotic fluid. And a yeah. lot of times that stuff comes out, it's not clear. And it's not clear because it has fecal matter and urine in it. And I cannot yeah. believe you're going to inject that into a human body and make anything right. good other than bacteria come out of it. Right. I don't think he was injecting it in the human body. He was just suspending him in amniotic fluid. He wasn't injecting him with amniotic fluid. But he did inject the toad yeah. with amniotic fluid. So so I got to go with Colin on this. I think he does inject it. I, but then I wonder what mm. is that medium that he's lowering it into. I, I thought, thought that I, was the amniotic fluid. Yeah, I got that impression too. And I'm like, how long were you collecting amniotic fluid? And what is the shelf life of amniotic <laughs> fluid? <laughs> right. Right. So the plus and the side fact was, it has it stored. <laughs> you got to see some 17th century birthing chairs, kind of cool with their little handles and you know, room for the baby to drop down in the middle. Yeah. Right. Kind of uncool. They collected buckets of amniotic fluid on film and yes. showed us. You know, yeah. despite the uh, despite the historical accuracy of the chairs, their dress was still incorrect. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, she, she would not have been wearing a uh, white wedding dress at that time. It would have been it would have been blue. At the time, blue represented purity and virginity, <laughs> akin to the Virgin Mary. And to defend James, his wife said that. He would not have known that normally himself. Yeah. Well, you're pretty smart, fancy britches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The movie, to me, is very 90s. The, the, that hair. Wow. Gosh. I found the score distracting. <laughs> It was it was like constantly scored. It was it was kind mm. of if if I divorced it from the actual film, it's probably beautiful music. But to me, it 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 made it melodramatic, and that was that was the biggest problem. I felt like everything was a little overwrought in the film, mm-hmm. even though it's quite a faithful adaptation. And as I said, it has right. the one plot point that I I did appreciate that it established that Victor Frankenstein was traumatized by his mother's death from early on, 
and he wanted to defeat death. You know, he, he, he went up into the hills and basically shouted at the universe that, he, that this should not be. And so then the idea that his wife would be killed on their wedding night, well, he's got the technology. She, he can rebuild her. Yeah. But, you know, I think in the book, one of his motivations was, you know, the loss of his mother. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in, some, in one of the movies, they bring in a dog also got lost. It's like, okay, yeah, mm -hmm. dog and mm -hmm. mom. Sure. That's bad. Just dog, just mom. That's yeah. okay. Let's talk about the cast because we had Kenneth Branagh as Victor Frankenstein. You had Helena Bottom Carter as Elizabeth. Robert De Niro as the creature. Yeah. Ian Holm as Baron yep. Frankenstein, who was evidently a physician. Yep. Right. I guess it's, it's possible. Um, <laughs> you had John, John Cleese, Cleese as... Dr. Waldman. I yeah. Think yeah. Waldman. yeah. And then the guy who played Cornelius Fudge as... Uh, Dr. Krempa. The professor right. who is yeah. a dick to him. And the guy who played Mozart as Henry Clavel. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely an A-list cast. I And the, and the guys from uh, Bounton Abbey. And a whole rap <laughs> right. of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Colin, you had looked up uh, the Rotten Tomato score, and it wasn't. It's was like thirty nine percent. It wasn't though, right? very good. Yeah, so not yeah. not very well regarded, and I'm not sure it's a very good movie, but it was a pretty good adaptation. So that's where you you run into yeah. trouble. I, I think it got too lost right. in the technology of creating the bodies. Let's let's yeah. skip it. Right? He goes into the room, bzzz, out pops Vic and the monster. Yeah. yeah. Well, and one thing you objected to also was uh, that he was building on the work of the professor. He didn't do it all himself. He Right. It wasn't an original work like in yeah. the book. I think in this movie too, uh, and this big brings back to what I said earlier, that I'm not too, too sure he was concerned with creating life as restoring yeah. or extending mm -hmm. life. I don't think he was out to create a whole new thing. He was just trying to figure out how to extend, the, extend someone's life or preserve someone's life in the event that they die, like his uh, mother and... Like you said, Elizabeth, he saw his dad, how his dad reacted to his wife's death. He's like, I don't want to go through that. I'm going to keep Elizabeth alive forever. Yeah. So you want to know something? <laughs> Rotten Tomato score of Frankenstein 1931. Take a stab. 100%. 100%. Yeah. You, you, you've got it right in front of you, don't you? No, but I saw it earlier. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Whereas then Frankenstein 1994, 39%. 39%, right. Well, what is it at now for the 20? Oh, well, I guess we'll get to that. 2015. Yeah, I think the last time I saw it was like at 26 or 29%. Yeah. yeah. And probably falling. That was Google Cash though. So not sure. The other thing that the 1994 movie does is it takes an abrupt turn with the bride. For, it does. Yeah, the monster yeah. makes sure that Frankenstein is motivated to finish the bride. And he mm -hmm. does it by murdering Elizabeth and then suggesting that they use Elizabeth's head for the bride. And then they kind right. of have a, a lover's triangle for about two minutes and 40 seconds Right. <laughs> uh, well, originally he wanted Justine. Yes. Right. And talk about irony. Yes. For a bride, I want the person that I murdered. Right. And so what I like is, um, I saw, I think it was on Reddit, you know, hey, what's the deal with Frankenstein where this guy is smart enough to reanimate corpses, but not smart enough to parse, I will be with you on your wedding night. <laughs> um, right. to, to understand, I'm, I'm threatening your marriage, not just your life. And so you have two people to worry about. Right. Oh, because in the book, you know, he, he basically resigns himself to go face the monster on his wedding night and is re resigning himself to die. You know what I didn't get about the movie, though, is why did he... Frankenstein didn't destroy the corpse yet in the movie, right? So there wasn't really a reason for him to go and kill Elizabeth in the movie, no. except maybe to rush the, rush the process, but... Right. He just refused to reanimate Justine. But he didn't, did he? He did. Yeah. I didn't remember him refusing to. Because yeah. he had the body built and everything ready to go in the movie. He, he hadn't destroyed it. I don't remember him refusing. Mostly what I remember... So my recollection is that he 
started working on the body. There's a whole melodramatic sequence of him sewing it all together. And then all of a sudden they were getting married. I was just like, wow. Okay. That was a weird, really kind of a weird transition for me. They were all of a sudden getting married. And then it, it just seemed like, uh, the monster was all pissed off that he's getting married and he hasn't been his bride yet. So he's going to destroy his bride, hmm. which didn't make sense to me at the time. Cause it seemed perfectly plausible that Frankenstein will get right back to giving you your bride after they're done getting married. Hmm. I, th- I thought it was more explicit that he rejected the idea of doing it. I see it as a self-fulfilling prophecy. That I think that's one of the last human parts of Victor Frankenstein dying, reminding him, I will be with you uh, at your wedding night because he is the monster. So if you ah. love Elizabeth, don't do this. Yeah. Don't marry her because right. you will kill her because you're insane. I just figured it was because you know he got all pissed off that you're getting married, but you didn't give me my bride, so now I'm going to take your bride and right. And then it goes haywire from there. Yeah. yeah. So the Brana movie was kind of a last minute ad- addition for us because we ha- we had right. all watched a different movie and we're kind of okay with ah we'll just go with that. We don't need to do the Brana one. Um, I'm kind of glad we did just because I think it's. I thought it was an interesting adaptation. I'm not necessarily recommending the movie. It's okay. But to me, it's a little just yeah. a little overdone, a little overly dramatic. Yeah. Right. If you want to that's, see something... That's my thing, a bit overly dramatic. Yeah. yeah. That's really canonical, but shorter than the next movie we're going to talk about. I think that's the only reason to recommend it. The one that we had, he's saying, if you want to watch a shorter canonical one, watch the 1994 one. But if you want to watch one that's quite canonical, you might want to go with the Hallmark Channel version from 2004. And this is, it's a very faithful one as well. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. nearly the cast that the Brana one does. It does have Donald Sutherland as Walton. And William Hurt. Yeah, has William Hurt. As one of the doctors. And Luke Goss. Who is Luke Goss? Luke Goss was the main reaper in Blade 2. Oh. So so like the new version of the vampires with the the chins Mm. that open up, you know? Um, and I thought he was pretty oh, yeah. effective in yeah, that. Yeah. And I liked him as the monster, actually. You know, we're, I guess we're getting into this. The thing is, if you're, if you're going to do this one, empty your bladder first. It's a three-hour miniseries. True. The downside is that there, <laughs> it's low budget because it's a miniseries adaptation on TV. And yeah. the monster does not look horrible. He sure doesn't. He, he's like the sexy goth <laughs> monster. Yeah, he's, he's a glittery Frankenstein. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's like the lead singer of a band called Frankenstein. But yeah, he he's an intelligent Frankenstein, and he when he hurts, you kind of hurt with him. Yeah, I, I and like I said, I enjoyed his portrayal. I thought he was more sympathetic than some previous versions, though. You know, the De Niro version was was pathetic because because he was so ugly. You could kind of put that label on him. Where the Luke Goss one was, right. I kind of had a hard time believing he couldn't just blend in. Mm. So yep. you know, just put put on a a hat and a trench coat. I think and, so. Yeah, you know. You'd probably be okay. Yes. If he just knew a little bit more about societal norms, he might have pulled it off. There was there was one scene where he was shirtless <laughs> and approaching Victor, and I think it was a dream sequence, but he wasn't shirtless. He was wearing a shirt that had like stitching drawn on it. Oh. I mean, that, that's how bad the effects are uh, in, in places. Um, I'm like, <laughs> wow, that was hilariously bad. And, yeah, and the guy who played Victor seems very wooden. Yeah, Alec Newman, right? And the, I've I've heard that accusation against him for the Dune miniseries as well. Mm-hmm. Although I liked him in Dune. Okay. So now the one the one plus side is he's pretty short, and Luke Goss is not really really tall, but it did make a juxtaposition work, you know, to make him but look it works, larger. Yeah. Yeah. Where right. De Niro looked very massive. Um, that I thought they did a good job making yes. him look huge. Mm-hmm. I don't know what what do you guys think of that adaptation? Is it do you recommend it? 
Eh, I don't know. <laughs> I thought actually, I thought it was a decent adaptation. Um, I, I'll go with uh, Colin on yeah. this one and say that it was faithful. Um, I did like the faithfulness of it. I liked the story that it told with the mm-hmm. eloquent monster. Um, but like you said, I had a hard time understanding why he was so rejected for being ugly because yeah. he really he was Hallmark that Channel ugly. ugly. <laughs> uh, you know, you're right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I did not feel like the movie was a waste of time for me to sit down and watch. Me neither, because I, I watched it on VLC video player on one one and a half speed. So because <laughs> <laughs> that's how I roll. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, guess, I guess if you're looking for a good Frankenstein adaptation, I would recommend it then. Yeah, like if you want to not read the book and get essentially the experience of of the book. Yeah. And it wasn't nearly as mellow well, over melodramatic as the True. Right. 1994 film. I mean, I would almost put that one on top if it wasn't so freaking overdramatic because I really liked De Niro portrayal of the monster and the makeup effects they did. But Kenneth Branagh is just like, dude, chill the frick out. <laughs> I mean, it's just just the plugging in of the devices into the body was like mm-hmm. crazy dramatic. I was like, what? Why? Well, ah. and the, the Rube Goldberg <laughs> contraption to get the monster into the vat. <laughs> Yes. Yes. That only that was completely unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. So for this one, I wrote down probably the most faithful adaptation one could hope for. Still, meh. Yeah, I'd yeah. agree with you on that one. Any other final thoughts on that one before we move on to Victor Frankenstein, or should we talk about I Frankenstein? Let's skip I Frankenstein. <laughs> well, okay. So about I Frankenstein, let's be very brief. Okay. <laughs> I, I like the fact that it essentially takes the entire story of Frankenstein as read, as actually having taken place, but the monster didn't die. Because, of course, the book does not show the monster dying. He just says, I will go away into the north and burn myself on a funeral pyre. And as you mentioned, Colin, there ain't no trees up in the North Pole. (laughs) Um, So, and so obviously Mary Shelley had not traveled that far north. Right. Um, So, yeah, you you never have the monster die. So I I actually kind of like the idea that, well, maybe something about the monster allows him to live for hundreds of years. And be involved in fighting gargoyles and demons. Yes. Um, would I be wrong in saying I, Frankenstein, is not the philosophical adaptation of Frankenstein we could hope for? No, about the only thing I think you can bring forward is that he is still judged, even by the angels and the demons. Hmm. The demons see him as a way to take over the world, and the angels see him as as a threat and something to be contained rather than uh, someone of value or worth or that has rights. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they seem as unholy yeah. still, right? So my thinking is creation. it will insult your intelligence to some degree, but if you're okay with that, it'll probably pleasantly pass an hour and a half ish. <laughs> kind of like a kidney stone. <laughs> I hate it when kidney stones insult my intelligence. <laughs> which brings us to which brings us to the twenty fifteen movie. Yes. This is like two kidney stones. There you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bilateral kidney stones. <laughs> That's our, there's our title. Yes. <laughs> so 2015, Victor Frankenstein, kind of an adaptation, a kind of a new take on, on the story. It brings in the character of Igor, which is in the pop culture, but not in the book. It brings in the character of an assistant. How about that? It does. Yeah. And... I kind of liked the idea of shifting the perspective to the perspective of Igor. Igor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and to me, like, if I want to go with the positives of the movie, I thought 
James McAvoy and Daniel Radcliffe were both really good. They, they, they did a good job with the material that they were given. So mm-hmm. I will say that. The movie, though, is... I can't get excited one way or the other about it. I don't think it's a good movie. I don't think it's a horrible movie. It's not... It, I don't like the style of it. And so I kind of veer towards the negative on it. But with good performances. Right, yeah. Good people doing good things in a bad movie. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there were the bones of a decent movie if it had been done somewhat differently. Like, I think I would have preferred it if it was a little more nonlinear instead of going from A to B to kind of do like the Batman Begins kind of interweaving narrative where it started with the monster being created instead of, okay, we're nine minutes from the end of the film, cue monster, kill monster, we're done. Right. If you consider Frankenstein a morality play about the dangers Mm -hmm. of of science and and, uh, obsession being taken too long, and then contrast Igor and the monster. As the two creations. As the two creations, right? Yeah. So Victor actually creates Igor from, mm-hmm. you know, a circus clown with a big pus pocket on his back. And, <laughs> you know, the monster, which was coerced out of Frankenstein in an effort to repay some perceived mistake that he made as a seven-year-old boy and to be taken over by the young lord from the medical school for his own selfish purposes right it, it just the young dandy yeah i mean mm-hmm. you're, you're right the core of a story is there mm-hmm. but well yeah so like you're talking about there there were good things there and i felt like they didn't establish well enough his motivation they brought it in at the end and said oh this is about your brother dying right. to protect you yeah um and there was the additional element of the religious zealotry of the inspector and Victor being this militant atheist kind of character. I'm like, you didn't, Mm. we didn't ever get that really set up. We just, he just, he had no internal monologue. He spoke all of his motivations and the motivations were pretty thin. You know, he he essentially said, I want to be God, but they didn't, I don't, I don't mind the idea of a character taking that position. I think it's wrong, but I would like to have seen it better done, better executed. It needs to be rebooted in like 10 years. <laughs> it probably will be. Um, I also like the amount of spittle that came out of James McAvoy's mouth. <laughs> that was pretty funny that you that when you mentioned it before I went and watched it, like, it yeah. came to light and like, holy crap, Seth was right. <laughs> yeah, Frothenstein. <laughs> the other, so the other thing that I would have liked to have seen was this as a prequel. I wanted it to end before the actual events of creating the, the main monster. I, oh. Because the way oh, the movie like the, ends, the story of Igor and Frankenstein coming together. Yeah, the story of Frankenstein's first creation being right. Igor, and because at the end when he's writing him in that note and he's sitting out in that sunny field, to mm-hmm. me that said, "I'm off to go and continue my work." Right. Um, yeah, yeah, the ending was bad. It should have ended with Frankenstein dying and Igor now carrying forth. Oh, that would have been interesting too. And as a pure prequel, I, I think that would have lost the thing that made value to me contrasting the two creations directly in the one movie. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah sure. Maybe they should have done it better. So we create Igor quickly, and then we create the monster, and then there's this interplay between the monster and Igor, where Igor gets to be the good guy sitting on your shoulder, and the monster gets to be the bad guy. Create me the bride, or I will kill hmm. you. If you do that, you don't know that you can trust right. him or not. And now now Frankenstein has a moral dilemma to try and, and confront and perhaps overcome. Yeah, but you have to have an intelligent monster to do that. You do. And they didn't go that route. Right. 
They went with the Klingon. <laughs> yeah. The redundant organs. Now, I will say the CGI monster was beautiful. You know, it, I agree. Out of all the special effects, it, it, it wasn't as cool looking as De Niro um, as an actor, a human mm-hmm. actor. But as a CGI creature, he is exactly right. what you want to see in a Frankenstein from cultural pop, uh, pop culture. He was definitely yeah. a monster, for sure. And not, not like, you know, made into a monster in the way that Luke Goss or De Niro were, but literally yeah. born a monster. Well, yeah, it introduced this idea that the, just the creation of new life would be inherently evil. Right. Right. And and Victor is kind of doing that mm-hmm. because of that reason. I mean, he's he's like purposely doing what other people con- consider evil, but because of his perspective of, you know, there is no such thing as God, then he's perfectly mm-hmm. justified in doing it. Well, and you mentioned his motivation. I mentioned his motivation was to try and yeah. to apologize for the death of his older brother, Henry. Right. Yeah, to balance the scales. Because he hoped that Henry's soul would be put into the monster so he could apologize to it. It's weird, though, because he's he's shown as very materialistic, and so there's no way he believes in the soul. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, I think he's kind of yeah, of two minds yeah. about the whole thing. Yeah. I, I didn't really get the... His motivation wasn't fleshed yeah. out very well. No. It, it, yeah. I think it was yeah. supposed to be a surprise reveal, and it was a surprise, but it was such mm. a surprise that it now couldn't impact the movie at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If there was like another, you know, half an hour or 40 minutes left in the movie when the surprise happened, yeah, maybe that would have worked. So this one was directed by Paul McGuigan, who also directed Push, which I know I've seen. Yep. Um, it's a Chris Evans movie. Colin, have you seen that one? I have. It's okay. uh, Chris Evans and Dakota Fanning and mm-hmm. somebody else. Jaiman Hansu. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting spin on the super- superhero genre, much like Chronicle, which was written by... The screenwriter right, yeah. who, who wrote Max Landis this movie, yep. so we kind of have. But I haven't seen anything good come out of him either, other than Chronicle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a quote from McGuigan that I found. I think it was on uh, Screen Rant where he says, "We add a lot of backstory to it, and it's our backstory. It's what we've chosen to make up. There's not a reverence to the book. I think sometimes people are over reverent about the book. It's got a fantastic premise. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's dull as dishwater, in my opinion." <laughs> So I, I can go for that. He's not a fan of the book. Yeah. But if you can't talk about all the things that we've talked about and pull that out of the book yeah. and reinvent it, then maybe maybe he should challenge himself a bit more. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. I mean Yeah, the whole the whole Igor plot line, that's that was fairly interesting. Yeah. It's not worth a movie all by itself. Yeah. I liked you know right. as much as I've said I don't like the style of the movie, I did like the introductory thing. You know, how we met Igor at the circus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was even okay with the, you know, him kind of seeing uh, the innards of bodies, you know, like he, he was studying physiology and he was a student of it. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of liked that idea. And, and the only reason that he wasn't able to become a doctor was because of his repugnant physiognomy. Yep. He had Victor vision. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Victor, <laughs> Victor vision. That reminded me of, uh, do you remember the, the one of the first Sherlock episodes? Where we're, we're watching Sherlock-type yeah. texts out and receive texts in yeah. the screen. That's what yeah. that reminded me of. And I thought it was a decent way sure. to illustrate what they were thinking or what they were seeing inside of their head because they yeah. know the physiology so well. I thought it was... So there was something very weird about the way Victor related to other people. Like, he was a very close talker. He seemed very handsy. And, like, so he gets Igor right. back to his place, shoves him against a wall, drains the pus <laughs> out of his hunch, um, and then... Like runs him into a post, like a he's the world's first chiropractor, and then and then puts that that uh, kind of trust thing on him to to support his new upright stance. 
Um, the bondage get up. Yeah. I think that takes us to the last movie in our setup. I think so. 1979 Mel Brooks, Victor Young Frankenstein. Yes. So, of course, we had to do the <laughs> comedy take on Frankenstein. Strictly speaking, it's not an adaptation of Frankenstein. Uh, it's a sequel. Yeah. It's a parody sequel. And, uh, and a better sequel sure. than I Frankenstein, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that movie is freaking hilarious. Yes. I, I hadn't seen yep. it in ages, and I figured it would be like Spaceballs, where Spaceballs was one that I saw when I was 14, and it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And I watched it recently, and I'm like, that movie sucks. It is terrible. Um, and it's not funny. Uh, but Young Frankenstein, man, that that is a funny movie. Yep. Uh, again, a really popular cast for the 1970s. You have uh, Gene Wilder mm-hmm. as... Frodrick right. Frankenstein. Yes. You have Terry Gar as his assistant, <laughs> uh, Cloris Leachman. As Frau Blucher. Uh, as Frau Blucher. <laughs> yes. Um, Marty Feldman as Igor, and potentially his twin Igor. Yeah, that was fantastic. Right. That's my son Tim's pet theory. Marty Eagle. Feldman was easily the best part of the movie. Yeah. Madeline Kahn as uh, Frodrick's fiance. Yes. Uh, hey, darling. Taffeta, darling. Taffeta, darling. <laughs> <laughs> rubbing elbows it gives a new new uh, new meaning to rubbing elbows Roland's the hay yes, yes. Roll, and, roll. and Peter Boyle as the monster yes right who can do a handy soft shoe with vocalizations yes. Peter Boyle is pretty great too he can easily <laughs> sing pun on the red pun on the red there's lots of times I do not laugh out loud at things, but that movie had me laughing out loud several times just with some of the, I mean, some of the humor in Mel Brooks is always very obvious, but sometimes he, he does have something that <laughs> I, I suppose that, you know, what knockers was a pretty obvious right. joke, <laughs> but, but it just, I don't know. It, I think it appealed to the, the completely juvenile part of my brain. Uh-huh. And then they had the part where Igor's hump, Igor's hump switched from the left to the right. Yeah. And then they pointed out on purpose. Yeah. And then Marty Feldman kind of looks at the screen like, did you notice? <laughs> a lot of, lot of fourth wall breaking in there. Yeah. So which, which brain did you get? It was Abby somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Abby normal. From, from the brain depository. I like depository, yes. not depository. Depository. Um, uh, you know, we don't need to do a plot walkthrough of young Frankenstein no. either, obviously. Um, and I'm getting tired. Yeah. We've been at this a while. Well, then, uh, shall we rank and wrap? Probably should. Frank, Frank, Frank and, and wrap, wrap, you said? <laughs> Frank and wrap. Yes. This is pound of rankings. Um, yeah. Okay. So we have a plethora of movies. Right. Yes. Uh, top three? I like the idea. Yeah, okay. I think so. You want to go first? Sure. And I'm going to cheat. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the best thing I watched or read was Young Frankenstein. By a long, long distance, <laughs> but it, but it, you know, it's it's not really fair to to put that up there. So I'm just gonna float that out there and then say, okay, out of out of there, what what are my top three? And I think I would go uh, 2004, the Hallmark miniseries uh-huh. with Luke Goss as the monster, and then I, I would bring up the book. I think it's worth your time to read once. You should understand the moral complications and the the where what we understand as culture comes from, and then the last thing you should read or watch is the 1931 movie and you can skip the rest nice i like it james what do you think i'm just gonna go number one young frankenstein <laughs> everything else is tied for second place basically yeah <laughs> okay so as i mentioned I'm, I'm a big fan of the book i i would put the book number one and then i would say 
as the number two entry, the original film and The Bride of Frankenstein, because it counts as one. <laughs> and and then Young Frankenstein. Now, I, w- I would say that on the scale of a j- enjoyment, I would put Young Frankenstein second. But I feel like to properly enjoy it, you should have seen the original film first. Because sure. you, get, you get to see a lot of the kind of uh, visual callbacks to the Universal Monster movies. And it's not just Frankenstein, because as, as I mentioned, they walk into someplace. And I think it is the set from Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having seen those movies, I think that, that increases your enjoyment of a parody. It's, it's always easier to, to, to enjoy a parody if you've seen the original. I mean, Galaxy Quest, I'm sure, is a, is a fine movie on its own. But if you're coming into it having watched original Trek, right. it's so much better. Yes. Or any Trek, really. Yeah. So really, you're saying that 3135 and Young Frankenstein constitute almost a trilogy. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. I could go with yeah. you on that one. But Young Frankenstein yeah. also takes into account like Dracula and stuff. It does. It's a, yeah. it's a monster parody in general. Yeah. 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 I didn't mention actually while we've been recording, I also watched Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which was fantastic. <laughs> um, and it, it has appearances from the Wolfman, from Dracula, from Frankenstein's monster, and from the Invisible Man. Nice. And I think so- maybe the mummy was in there too. <laughs> Will we be revisiting that for The Invisible Man and for Dracula then? Oh, I think we should. Although The Invisible Man comes in at the very end. How, how could you tell? Isn't he invisible? <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that Rowan Atkinson sketch? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Where he, where he talks about it, he's invisible and how he messes with people on the train. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> well, if we do The Invisible Man, I'll have to link that one. Okay, I think we are Frank and wrapped. It's about Frank and time. Abs of Frank and Lutley. So our next podcast will be a Pavement Pounders Picks episode, I believe. Yeah, if we get her done. Because we are coming into, of course, the season. It's turned to December, so now it is Star Wars season, not Christmas season. Star Wars comes first, right. then Christmas. And so we thought it would be good for us to get together and talk about something related to Star Wars. We're probably not going to have seen The Force Awakens before we record. And that's fine, because you don't need us to give you our opinions on Star Wars. You'll either like it or you won't. But we wanted to talk about some of the expanded universe, some of the the things that kept Star Wars alive during the interregnum between the original trilogy and the prequels, and now the new series. So that's what we're going to be doing for Payment Pounders Picks. And then we will probably also bring you another episode. We could get three episodes out in December, you guys, um, if if we do everything wrong. Wow. It's interesting, though, because like you'd think our schedule would be wide open because we only go once a month, but it makes it so that if we have two or three things we want to do, we're, we're like, okay, sometime next year, mid-next year, we'll be able to do what somebody suggests or, or something like that. Oh, yeah. you know, we'll we'll like true. have three or four things that, that we want to do, and so that pushes our schedule way out. But if you are out there and you're listening to us and you're like, hey, but you guys, you cover adapted science fiction, and I want you to cover this book and this movie, then you can send us your idea, and we may very well slide something that we want to do down the road in order to pick up your topic that you want us to cover. So if you would like to do that, you can go to our website, pavementpodcast.com. You can look for the contact form there and send us your suggestion that way, or you can look for us on the socials. Our social media username is Pavement Podcast. So at Pavement Podcast on Twitter and facebook.com slash pavementpodcast. And if you're listening to us and you haven't liked the page yet, go over there and like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. I guess we're wrapped. Yep. Yeah. Pavement Pounder Blessing. You want to give us a blessing, Seth? Ooh, see, I haven't thought of a blessing. We, I suggested one the other night. Do you remember what it was? We had just finished watching oh, right. at your house. <laughs> so that would be, may the road rise up to meet you and... Put on the red! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Done.
Yeah, that part cracked me up. I had not, I did not remember. Yeah, I totally forgot that was in that movie. <laughs> it was great. Gene Wilder's a pretty good dancer too. Oh, he is. Oh yeah, yeah, that was cool. But no, no, no. Okay. All right, I think we're done. Alrighty. Okay. Bye, everybody. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper. Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in their midst.